With that, if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to find Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Uh, today, we are wrapping up our three-week series that we've been in uh, that we have called The Gift. All right, we've been looking at each one of the three gifts that were given to Jesus uh, and his family by the wise men, by the magi. You know, we just kind of heard about this. And my son was the last one. when We brought gifts, too. You know, and like, uh, it's funny because we actually, we don't know how many wise men there were, but because there's three gifts, we always have it depicted as three wise men and, and all these different things that kind of go along with that. And it's a, it's a small part of the Christmas story, uh, but it, it's well known and, and we see it in almost every single manger scene that is going to be set up. Uh, but the cool thing about the gifts is that they actually have a very deep symbolic meaning to them. And when we understand the meaning behind each one of these gifts, uh, I think it actually just gives us greater insight into Jesus and greater insight into what his life was supposed to be and expected to be and, and really then how we actually can, can follow him. All right, so I, I want us today, let's just be ready to kind of lean in. Uh, we are only one week away from Christmas. And I know personally for me, I want to begin to just shift my focus from shopping and running around and all the different things. And instead, I, I want to begin to slow down and just say, okay, Jesus, what, what is this season supposed to mean for me? What can I get out of this? And that's what I want to do. So I want to encourage you to do the same thing with me. Let's just begin to slow down, focus in on him. Uh, if you are willing, if you're able, would you stand with me uh, as we read just this passage talking about the gifts here together? Matthew chapter 2. Starting a little ways into verse 9. The wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Jesus, we just pray this morning, Lord, that as we... As we continue to focus in on this, this story, Lord, something that we've probably heard before and maybe has been uh, just kind of part of our childhood and, and almost kind of a fairy tale to us, God, instead I pray that this would become so real that this would be something that would challenge us and it would actually even just change the way that we are living today. Lord, we ask that in your name. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. So we've been focusing in on each of these gifts and their meanings. Uh, now, the interesting thing about these gifts is that they, they serve several purposes. All right, first off, they were just very nice, very practical gifts. All right, frankincense and myrrh were both used in medicinal ways. Uh, they were used with perfumes, with fragrances, uh, just all sorts of different things. But both had some very specific ways that they were used as well. Uh, or at least ways that first century Jewish people, when they heard about these gifts being given, uh, they would have thought about specific purposes for them. All right? Frankincense was used daily by the priests in the tabernacle and in the temple. All right? It was mixed with other things that were burned every single day as this pleasing aroma to God. All right? And myrrh was used uh, actually in the embalming process of someone who had passed away. All right, so right away, like those are probably the main two things that would have came into people's minds when they would have heard these gifts. All right, and all these gifts were highly valuable as well. It is thought that these three gifts were probably sold by Mary and Joseph 
right? Like sometimes that just doesn't sit right with us. You know, like you give a Christmas gift and someone returns it right away or sells it. But they would have sold this probably. And this would have actually, this would have funded, this would have bankrolled their trip to Egypt and their life in Egypt as they were trying to hide from Herod who was trying to kill Jesus, right? We remember that in the story that they got up and, and Herod was, was trying to kill every boy under two years old and they would have traveled. Well, that takes money. Staying in another country takes money. And this probably funded all of that for them, all right? And, but beyond the monetary value of these gifts, each one actually had a specific symbolism, a spiritual foreshadowing that they carried. In the first week, we talked about frankincense and how it foreshadowed Jesus as fulfilling this role as the high priest. All right, and that doesn't really always make sense to us today in our modern life. I'm going to challenge you, if you weren't here two weeks ago for that, go back and listen to that because there's just, there's so much going on. Really, from the beginning of creation, we were made to be priests. And what that means, the simple definition of priest is just simply, we're a mediator for God to creation. We represent God to creation. We represent creation to God. We are this, this bridge. And, and, and so this symbolized Jesus being able to actually fulfill that role because no one up until this time could take on the responsibility in the way that they were supposed to and fulfill that bridge between us and God. But Jesus was able to do that. And frankincense, it foreshadowed that. Last week, Pastor Aaron shared about myrrh and how it foreshadowed the, the pain and suffering and death that Jesus would willingly undergo. I was laughing because I had the, the translation app up while she was preaching, and every single time that she said myrrh, it came through in English as murder. All right, so if you were using that app last week, I'm sorry. One of the gifts was not the gift of murder, okay? It was the gift of myrrh, um, but... Uh, Myrrh would have foreshadowed this, this pain, this suffering that, that Jesus would willingly undergo. Myrrh linked Jesus to people from the past of the Jewish faith, like Joseph. All right, it was, it was in Joseph's story when he's sold into slavery. And it's this small little part. All right, and for us, for me, when I read that, I don't automatically link the gift of myrrh to Joseph. But we have to remember that in first century, the people that this was written to, they had so much of this memorized. They had so much, every little detail they had in their mind. They were studying this. They were going to school for this. And when they would hear something like myrrh, it would come into their mind the different times throughout Scripture that myrrh had been mentioned. And in Joseph's story, just this little off comment of myrrh immediately brings to mind Joseph. And Joseph is this person who goes through pain and suffering and persecution and being wrongfully accused and, and imprisoned. But through all of this, Joseph actually becomes a bit of this, uh, a savior for the Israelite people. He is the one that rescues the whole family by being in Egypt. We also see it in the story of Esther, when she's being prepared to go and meet the king. And for Esther, again, we have someone who has to go through difficult things, things that could result in her death. And instead, she goes before the king and ends up saving all of God's people. So when they hear myrrh is one of the gifts, they're going to immediately stop and think, wow, that, that puts this baby in the same category as, as Joseph and Esther and, and these people that came and rescued God's people. 
Isaiah talks about the future king who will come and rescue the people, but not in a way that you would expect. Instead, uh, he comes not as much as a king, but as a servant who suffers and is persecuted and is killed. But through that death is victorious and makes a way for people to become servants like him and inherit the future new Jerusalem, new creation that God is making. So this gift of myrrh used for embalming bodies points to this role that Jesus would take on. Which brings us to the last gift, the gift of gold. Probably the only gift that most of us immediately knew what it was and what you would do with it. All right, like it, it still kind of carries the same idea, same value today. All right, how many of you guys uh, on your Christmas list for your family, how many of you guys put gold on that list? A couple, okay. Like if you didn't, let me just tell you, you are missing out. All right, and, and let me tell you even how you can do this. When they say, hey, I looked at your list and you just, you have gold. You expect me to buy you gold? You just come back and you say, hey, here's the deal. I've been really trying to be a lot like Jesus lately. And as I was reading through the story, I noticed that for Christmas, Jesus got gold. So I think to be like Jesus, I'd really appreciate if you would give me gold. I just see if that works. Maybe it'll work. I don't know. Now, the symbolism of gold, of this gift, uh, really is, is pretty obvious for us. Like it, gold represents wealth, but wealth not really in a way that just your, your common person in that day would be dealing with this, okay? Gold really represented something that was a lot more uh, rich, a lot more noble. Really, it, it was royalty. Like, kings and queens dealt with gold. The everyday person did not deal with gold in the same way that a king or a queen would. Like, we read things of this king had this much gold in their possession, and, and this queen traveled from this distant land, and, and she had this much gold and all these different things. Like, it, it really represents this idea of a king, all right? And we, we like to picture Jesus like a king, all right? Like this special baby who would reign forever. So we paint pictures of him in the nativity scene. Uh, and if you guys ever seen this, he has this like special glow. Anybody, okay? Like I said, I'm gonna have a few pictures behind me here, all right? Like, and we'll just kind of go through these first three. You can see this idea, like you see Jesus and but there's like this glow. There's not like a light or anything. There's just this glow around Jesus. And we think of him as this like amazing, special, special baby. And I, when I see this, you want to know what I think of actually? I think of, of Disney Hercules. All right? Like you remember when, when Hercules was a god, he had this special glow about him. And those two guys come and make him drink the poison. And then the glow like starts to disappear out of Hercules. All right, like we get this idea of Jesus as this baby, like this king, like we, we immediately, this one's easy for us to grab. You know, the idea of a high priest, uh, of a suffering servant, that's hard. Jesus as a king, like this makes sense for us. We like to picture him that way. But the problem is we can end up letting that picture of Jesus really actually distort and color everything else that we think about him. Like, yes, he's royal. Yes, he is king of kings and lord of lords. Uh, but not necessarily from a worldly perspective. His birth was about as humble as it can come. It wasn't some big spectacle. All right, there isn't much known about ancient births, uh, especially kind of in the, in the Roman times, things like that. Now, actually, in the medieval ages, a royal birth was a huge deal. All right, now think about it still today. Like, I don't know if you guys, my wife kind of followed, you know, still any, any of the, the royalty over in England. Like, when there's a birth, it's like all these exciting things and stuff. It's still kind of a big deal. 
But actually, in ancient days, uh, medieval times, when, when the queen would go into labor, they'd ring this bell, and then everybody would come into the room that she was in. Like, 100 people, all there to witness her give birth. Okay, any moms in the room? You're like, yeah, I want to do that over, and I want to go that route. No, okay. All right, like the, it, was, it was a big deal. And like when royalty is born, everybody hears about it. There's this announcement that happens through the world and people are excited about this. This is not what we read about Jesus' birth. It was, it was humble. It wasn't flashy. And then his life, the way he lives, Jesus basically lives homeless, wandering from town to town. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus says, the Son of Man has nowhere to even lay his head down. Right? They, that doesn't sound like any king that I've read about before. Right, we don't know too many kings that are homeless. You see, of the, of the three roles that Jesus holds and, and are foreshadowed by these gifts, the role of king is the least visible in his time on earth. It's something that really, it comes after his death and resurrection. And the weird thing is it's actually accomplished by these other two roles. He's installed as king because of his role as this high priest out of this suffering servant. Like, those are the way that this happens. Um, and as followers of Jesus, we think about him. We, we want to emulate him. We want to follow in his footsteps the best that we can. We want to point to Jesus and say, hey, that's the team that I'm on. Right? That's my leader right there. But when we do that, what, what Jesus are we pointing to and admiring? Usually, it isn't the homeless, wandering Jesus that doesn't have anywhere to sleep at night. Right? Like, that, that's, that's the team I want to be on. Usually it isn't the Jesus that is constantly waking up early and spending time alone with the Father. It isn't Jesus who's spending time with the sick and dying and, and diseases that, that would kill somebody. Or spending time with people that no one else wanted to be around. Usually it isn't the beaten and bloody Jesus who is called names as he dies. And we point to him and say, yeah, that's the team that I want to be on. Usually that's not how this goes. Usually, we want to point to Jesus as, you know, Jesus in the book of Revelation, riding in on a white horse with fire in his eyes and all these, you know, a big sword and, and, and kicking butt, taking names and kicking butt, you know, like that. And we're like, that's the team that I'm on. There's my captain. That, that, that's the, the one that we're like, yes, I, I like that. That's the Jesus that I'm following. The problem is we want to identify with King Jesus, but we don't always want to identify with Jesus as the high priest and the responsibility that comes with that, or Jesus as the suffering servant. We like this idea of the gold, but those other two gifts, those are sort of lame. But Jesus couldn't have been king without first being these other two. Those weren't things that Jesus had to endure so that he could get to the good stuff. Those were actually how he was enthroned as king. They weren't hiccups along the way. They were the means by which everything else happened. Remember, God wanted to partner with us. He wants to rule over creation with us. But that comes with a responsibility. Like Adam and Eve, who had a responsibility to take care of creation, take care of the sacred space, the priests that had the responsibility of doing all these different things in the tabernacle, in the temple, Right? Like, we want so badly to have the reign of a king, but without the responsibility of a priest and the requirement of being a suffering servant. Like, this, this is the main point I want you guys to get today. 
All right, write this down. We'll have this on the screen. We want so badly to have that reign of a king without the responsibility of a priest or the requirement of being a suffering servant. Because of this, we hang on to those cute images of of glowing Jesus and, and we paint the picture of the victorious Jesus riding into battle. And it's not that those things are untrue. We, we just are conveniently leaving out the parts that we don't like. I think some of this has been done even by, by Christians or by leaders within the Christian faith to, in a way, almost make it easier to entice people to become a Christian. Like, look at this. Look at, look at our team captain over there. Don't you want to be on this team? You should come be a Christian. This is, this is what it is. And all those are true things. But what happens when that person, when they find out that there's some responsibility that comes with following Jesus? Right? Like all of a sudden they're like, wait, I, I have to do this? I have to, I have to stop doing that? I have, to, I have to represent God to other people? Like I have to be, what? I, I don't want to do that. Like this, this isn't what I signed up for. I thought I signed up just to kind of, you know, rule and reign and be this awesome person. And what happens when all of a sudden some big, some, some big bad things happen in life and they begin to suffer? Especially if they are suffering because they've made the decision to follow Jesus. Right? Like the thought that's going to go through their mind is this, this isn't what I signed up for. I thought that I would just constantly win battles. This doesn't feel like winning anymore. Even though, what, what did Jesus promise us? He said, you will have trials and sorrows. It's not a promise we like to claim very often. Jesus says that will happen. We all desire to associate with with King Jesus, but are we willing to take on the responsibility of caring for God's creation, to represent God to the people around us? Are we willing to shoulder the responsibility it takes to partner with God and work in his creation? Are we willing to endure hardships or to suffer, to be persecuted, or even lose our life because of this partnership that we have? We can't separate these out and just, just pick what we want. It's, it's a package deal. When Jesus was arrested and put on trial, Pilate asked Jesus if he was king. I'm sure to Pilate, Jesus didn't look like a king or act like a king. Jesus told Pilate that his kingdom wasn't of this world. All right, if, if your goal in life is to make it as far as you can or as high as you can in this world, then the kingdom you are fighting for and ruling over isn't Jesus' kingdom. If you want to join in the ruling of God's kingdom someday, then you need to pick up the responsibility and be willing to go through hardships and suffering in this kingdom today. That is how Jesus lived. It's what we need to keep at the center of our mind this Christmas season. As we celebrate his coming into creation as a small, humble, defenseless baby. Let's stand together as we get ready just to close today. Worship team, you guys can come. I've loved diving into these three gifts. Uh, you know, this is something that every single Christmas season, I've, I've read about these, I've heard about these, I know about these. But it's just kind of this off little detail that happens at the beginning. And I just don't really think about it again. 
Right, like, oh yeah, that's right, they brought these gifts. I, I hope that this Christmas season, that maybe things have, have changed for you a little bit. That as we've kind of dove deeper into the Christmas story, that some of this would just begin to kind of resonate with you a little bit more and maybe begin to kind of uh, just create this new focus for you even. This new appreciation for the story, this new appreciation for what, what Jesus has done and, and what this Christmas season means. And I think with that, even being willing to take steps that we maybe haven't before. Like we are, we are so quick to celebrate Jesus, the Messiah, the King of Kings, coming. Are we willing, though, to actually stand with him to go through what he went through? Or are we just trying to skip ahead to the end and say, okay, I, I want to be part of that. That, that end picture, you know, where we're in charge of everything and everything's great and there's no more sickness, no more crying, no more tears. That, that's what I signed up for. When the reality is there, there's so much before that that is part of being a follower of Jesus that we are called to be part of. And I want us this Christmas season, we, we have one week here, week from today's Christmas, what can you do this Christmas season to make this just mean a little bit more for you? What can you do this Christmas season to make sure that you're not just focusing on the, the good part of the story and saying, okay, that's, that's what I want to associate with, but instead saying, okay, when Jesus came, like there was more to this story. There was responsibility that he had. He was always the son of God. He never got to take that hat off and be like, well, you know what? I'm a little mad. I'm a little frustrated right now. I'm just not going to be the son of God right now. I'm going to tell this person what I really think of them, and then I'll go put that hat back on. And the reality is for us as followers of Jesus, we don't get to do that either. If you call yourself a Christian, if you bear the name of, of God, like we are always representing. That's, act, that, that's what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. Like I think a lot of us have probably been taught like, okay, don't, don't stub your toe and then yell Jesus, you know, or something like that. And, you know, don't say things like that, that that's taking the Lord's name in vain. Really what, what that commandment means is, okay, you are bearing the name of God. You are carrying the name of God. You are a Christian. People maybe know that you're a Christian. Don't do that in the wrong way. Don't bear the name in a wrong way. It's a commandment against hypocrisy of saying, okay, I'm a Christian. I want all the good that comes with it, and I want to just kind of be a Christian when it suits me. But when it doesn't, I'm not going to do that anymore. So I want to just kind of challenge us with this last message before Christmas here, and this last week as we move into this season. What, what does that look like for you? What does it look like to really bear the name of Jesus? and take on the responsibility and role that he had. And let that change you this Christmas season. And hopefully through that, through the change that happens in you, that it'll actually change the people around you. Because that's the responsibility. That was the role of a priest. You're a representative of God. That's a big responsibility.
It's a very big responsibility. Let's do this. We're gonna we're gonna sing sing one song again here. You can join in singing if you want. But let's just take these moments, begin to let this kind of just soak in and, and just kind of figure out, okay, what is it that I need to be doing today? What are my steps as I walk out of here today? As I start pointing, you know, my focus ahead to, to Christmas and what this means. What needs to change in my life so that I can accurately represent God?